zoo a call right now at two. It's 5.30 in the morning and Mike Reiner is already at work. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Square One here in the Mighty Athletic Podcast space. I would be your congenital host. I am Mike Reiner. And today, we are very, very excited with what we've got for you. This is being recorded on the 22nd of September. It's about uh, a little bit before noon. It's a rainy day, a rainy, stormy day. Or it has been, but it looks like that's about to break a little bit out here today. And boy, today, I'm really thrilled about this because we've got a guy on that he and I have bumped into each other many times over the years. We always have a lot of fun bantering repartee between us because I really think we're kind of kindred spirits. But the reality is, back in the day, when I was in the game, he belonged to somebody else. And I could never have him on the show the way I wanted. <laughs> that was then. This is now. And today I am delighted to welcome to Square One the great Daryl Razor Ray, stars, television, hockey analyst, Supremo. There is nobody like him, never has been. Never will be. How are you doing? Oh, my God. I could listen to you forever. Just keep talking about me. <laughs> Just keep leading me in Oh, it's here. very easy for me to talk if, about you. If if you're congenital, then does that make me the genital guest yeah, of this podcast right, today? <laughs> <laughs> Things are good, but, man, you look great. Well, you, thank you. You're in a wonderful space, it seems. Yes, yes. I'm really yeah. digging what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm digging life in general these days. Next step. Yes. Next step. Next chapter. We're on to it, man. Yes, you we are. We're on to it and digging it quite a bit. Well, you just uh, are in the process of concluding another Dallas Hockey Stars season. Yeah. The playoffs are on. The Stanley Cup Championship Series is where they have found themselves. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, it, it, this is out of the blue this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody really saw this coming when things paused because of COVID. And the Stars were struggling to win games, score goals. They just didn't look like they were a team that was going to challenge for any kind of a, a championship. And with the bubble in Edmonton, uh, they have found this internal community that's really, really strong within the group. They don't want to let one another down. They seem to play really hard for each other. And with that, they've been able to dispatch three clubs, and now they're a couple games into a Stanley Cup final that is, I wouldn't say shocking, but it's it's very surprising that they're where they're at here right now in a very weird world and. uh you know, to be playing Stanley Cup playoff games in the same space and weekend as Cowboys football, uh, the U.S. Open going on. I mean, there's just this so is man many bites dog. Yes, know? it is. It is. But I mean, that said, they're they're within three wins of winning the second Stanley Cup for this this franchise in this city, and really, if they do it. They will have captured two of the most memorable Stanley Cups in the history of this league just because of the nature of how they won it back in 99 with mm -hmm. a very controversial uh, goal with Brett Hall. Right. And now this one where this is going to be a one-off, we hope. I don't think you'll ever see a, a playoff like this in a bubble where you have two, especially two the, the two southern teams, a, a Texas team and a Florida team, Boy, the hockey purists must be going. Oh nuts. my God! Yes, uh, and they're and the ratings are backing that up on television a little <laughs> bit. But they're competing for this in an empty arena in the most northern venue that could possibly be. I mean, they're basically south of the North Pole, 
and trying to win a Stanley Cup <laughs> in September and October. It's nuts. Oh, it is crazy. And you know, when you look at the larger picture and consider everything that's happened this year, all the stuff that came down before, you know, the break with Monty and everything, yeah. the coaching change, the promotion of a uh, guy, guy that, you know, the regular. Bonus, I mean, five decades in the game. Yeah, five decades in the game, and the average spare guy out there couldn't tell you too much about him. No. Really, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it aligns with, with every, the bizarre nature of, of everything. And uh, that's why when, when we look back on this, whether they win it or, or don't, I mean, and Rick likes to call it a journey, not a, not a grind. It feels like a grind, but he likes to refer to these as journeys. He's been on one now for, uh, you know, 50 years of his 65 years on the planet. And uh, he, he has w- one thing. He's myopically focused on one thing, and that's to win a Stanley Cup. And here he sits on the precipice of perhaps doing that. What do you think is going to happen to him after the season's over? That's a good question. I, because everybody tells me that they're not sure he wants the job. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not positive at this point either. Uh, but he may may have grown into liking it more than he thought before. And he he went out last summer and interviewed for the head coaching job in Ottawa with the Senators. So it's not like he was distancing from yeah, right. that uh, as part of uh, his want or need at his age uh, and that he would just be okay being an assistant or an associate coach. So uh, and now they have this success uh, they've they've taken to him they play they lay it down for Rick Bonus they, you know that you've seen a, whatever sport it is sure you you get a coach time you know comes along and and guys come and go at that position but a guy gets in there where players will and I know it's a cliche in that but players will literally run through a wall to try to get him yeah and you can always tell but you know, when you've got a guy like that. Yeah. And that's definitely the way it is for him. Yeah, whereas back in the day with Hitch, your old boy on Hitch in the hard line, uh, it was more a galvanization of the players <laughs> against him at the time, uh, although they understood, I think, over time that if they did what he was saying, their chances for success went way up, and they did it begrudgingly. They'd all, always want to do it a different way. Right. And then they'd find out, well, that doesn't work. Maybe we should listen to them, and they'd listen to them, and they'd win. Uh, and so it's very different now in that they listen to him. He's very much a, a sort of fatherly figure and, and a teacher, and a, and a motivator, and he keeps things light, and he's so energetic at, at his age, and they, they just feel like they would do anything to get him what he wants, and they're trying to do that right now. Could you have seen this when the whole Monty thing came no. down? I mean, no. describe, if you can, the state of things on the inside when that was, when that was rolling. Well, I mean, it was... This season, I mean, hockey in general, they, we love to hire and fire coaches. It's just part of the sure. landscape. Like It's like baseball. Yeah, I mean, there, there were, what, 20% of the coaches get, got changed over from the beginning of the year, and most of them are usually for either panicky general managers or the, uh, the play on the ice, the, whether you win or lose. They all understand it, coaches, and I, I think there's a confidence in there that you're going to get hired again. But this one, to just show up in the morning and it's like, what happened? And uh, he got piped and it was, nobody wanted or could uh, say exactly why. And, and that brought in all kinds of rumors. And and Rick, I mean, it was a game day. Rick had to step behind the bench and take on this thing against Jersey. And But I'll, I'll say this, like within about nine days, ironically, we were in Tampa Bay. And this is no knock against uh, Montgomery, who who had done wonderful things in a very short period of time here. I mean, they were within a goal of going to the conference final the year before, and they sure. lost in double overtime to St. Louis. But we're, we're in, in uh, Tampa, and because Rick had been there for five years prior, and there was a lot of hubbub over him coming back in as the head coach. And I, I asked Jamie 
uh, Ben, the Stars captain, I, I, I said, can you give me a sense of how this has gone and what, what the feeling is within the group with the change is because of your question. I mean, it was just so odd. It was so out of nowhere. And he said, I'm not, I'm not kidding. And I'm not trying to be flippant or anything, but it feels like Monty was never here. That's how quickly they took to Rick as the, as the head coach. And they just, you know, that's moved. funny. That's that, that, that's kind of the vibe I got about the whole thing. Yeah. And and that's I think that's why they've been able to have the success that they've had in that I don't know whether it's an armor that's been built up within the group or what, but they're able to just kind of move on from stuff being thrown at them, and that was that was a big curve in the middle of a season. And I mean, they had great success, and they'd also had some valleys they had to get through. I mean, they were they were living yeah, and dying up and as a group. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you, he's gone, and, and nobody can really say what the reason was. And some guys, I think, knew, but they didn't want to say. And they just moved forward. And, and they had wonderful success, and then peaks and valleys under, under Rick as well. And I, I think it suited them well in the bubble where a lot of stuff's been thrown at them in this playoff run, and they seem to be able to just kind of raise their eyebrows, shrug their shoulders, and move on. It must be nice to be up there in the bubble, or it must be – I guess productive, maybe not nice, but productive and beneficial to be up there in the bubble where all you got is each other. You know, there yeah. are no distractions. There is no outside nonsense. You got each other. You got the games, and that's really pretty much it. I mean, if things in the bubble are indeed the way we're led to believe they are. Uh, yeah. I would doubt that they are as good as the pamphlet states. Yeah, but... I would too. <laughs> and – we're going to hear on the other side of this thing just what a mental grind it has been for them. I mean, they they've been caged in there. I mean, they they don't they don't really get out to do much. There've been days. I remember talking with uh players and and talking with with Rick Bonus and he said I haven't seen the sun in 3 days cuz they the hotel is attached to the arena and they go through sort of a little gerbil hole over there, yeah, and then they're in the arena, and the games were coming every second day. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's been a, a really easy life because they're just basically living and breathing the game, and they're, they're together. It's just them, but that gets old after a while too. And I think that's why here in the in the final, they're going to have them play back to back games and three games and four nights. I think they're just trying to get it over with and get these guys back to their families and out of this bubble. Well, Razor, all of that's all well and good. But mainly, I want to talk about you. I want to talk about the greatness of Daryl oh Razor Ray and how he got to be. Because you are singular. I mean, you occupy, a, in my mind anyway, a very singular place. I mean, you and Eric Nadell are pretty much at the top of all the radio and TV guys that we have around here for me, as far as doing, you know, play-by-play color, that type of thing. Well, it's just tenure, I think, for me. <laughs> it's just that I've well, been here may, for so long. T- it may be tenure for him, too, but still. No, he is greatness. Oh, yeah. That, that yeah. Is, well, so are you. I mean, you, you both is, have been along, around here a long time. You're candy you when greatness. you listen to him on Ranger games. Oh, so. it really is. And, you know, I know a little bit, not a lot – about your time as a player. But whenever I think about... <laughs> well, it's a short... It's a very brief history if you want me to go through it. <laughs> what do you want to know? Well, whenever I think about, you know, guys who get into the game of hockey, it's always been a curious point for me as to exactly how kids matriculate into the game. Yeah. You know, I was, we were talking earlier about this, and I was telling buttering you up a little bit and letting you know what's coming. And I know how it happens in football and basketball. You know, you play in high school, you play AAU, and then if you're good enough, you go to college. And if you don't, it's as a great man said, it's time for you to get on with your life's work. <laughs> but um, in hockey, it's different because, yeah. especially down, you know, in 
it's, it's so new in this part of the world, but I was reading the story in a paper today about one of the guys on Tampa Bay, Blake Coleman, who is from here. Yeah. And he started playing hockey around here. And as the story goes, the interview was with his mom. And she said that she never had to get him going. Like to play hockey as a kid, you got to get up really, really early. You got to get to the rink. And it all happens before anything else in the day does. And man, kids just are not wired that way these days. But apparently he was. She said she never had any problem with that. In fact, she said that he would come in there and get her going. Yeah, I, I I have so much respect for especially guys like Blake. Uh anybody in in uh southern locales that gravitate to hockey and then stick with it because the the peer pressure growing up uh to play football like here to play football. Yeah. You know, all your buddies are playing football. Uh you go to middle school, they're all on the football team. And it's like, why are you playing hockey? Like we're all over here and Chicks dig football players, not hockey players. Why are you going into the arena and doing this all the time? So the, the, there has to be some kind of a drive, and he was such a massive Stars fan. So obviously the franchise and the team and their successes here had a major impact on him. Did you know that. him back in the day? Did you ever meet him? No, right but I, I, I remember the, the uh, guys, uh, players, because he would skate in the summer. You needed extra guys to play summer hockey. and they Sure trying to get their wheels under them late in the summer and, and ready for training camp. And some of these local guys would, would be there, and, and he was one of them. And like everybody, you, you, in this sport, you have to go away and, and sort of be on your own in order to get to where you want to go. And it was no different with me. Like, I left home when I was 14. Now, see, this is what I don't understand. This is, this is where it – Stops computing for me. Oh, it seems insane to me now. (laughs) And I remember when my daughters, you know, they were 14 and 15 years old. And I was thinking to myself, man, I could not imagine just releasing them to another family and living with billets is the way we did it. So a family would take you in and you'd live with them. And you'd spend all this time with guys up to age 20. I mean, there's a chasm in maturity and interests between 20 years old and 14, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're being exposed. A lot of things change. Yeah, you're being exposed to some stuff. <laughs> and, they're, you know, you're, you're living with adults, but at the same time, they're not your parents. Uh, you can get pulled down the wrong path in some ways. And uh, I'm not going to say I didn't meander here and there, but... That that's just what you did, and and everyone understood it. I'm from uh, a city or town called Prince George, which is a mill town and in, in a logging town in northern British Columbia, where there were three pulp mills. We always said wind from the east is never good for man nor beast because those pulp mills would that smell of just ass. It smells like ass would just <laughs> drift in and hang over the the city. But the idea being, we, as kids, we were all chasing the dream. We always wanted to play in the NHL. I mean, it's, and I believed it. Like, people would ask me, aunts would ask me, or teachers, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd always say I'd want to be a hockey player, that and a cowboy. And not a Dallas cowboy, an actual cowboy, horses and everything. And, and then they'd say, well, that's wonderful. You know, they'd always give you, that's wonderful, and you have dreams, and it's terrific. Sure. But you need something to fall back on. What are you going to fall back on? I said, well, I'm going to fall back on hockey. No plan B. Felt like slapping him in the face. Yeah, I mean, like a Viking. Burn your boat. You know, you go there and I'm not going to retreat from this thing. Uh, You know, chess, puffy, you know, 13, 12-year-old. But I believed it and and left home and played junior hockey. And, uh, man, just a crazy, crazy existence. You talk about Boys Town. Uh, going on and and uh, and you you know you find your way through and there are ups and downs and setbacks and you either have the drive to actually realize your goal or you don't and you know we got school in sort of it's different now thank God it just started to change around the time I was I was turning pro where guys who played college hockey in the United States had as 
good a chance as the guys that were playing junior hockey. Maybe not as quick a path, mm-hmm. but then we would look at it and we're like, well, hold it here. I get drafted. They hold my rights for years. I'm getting you know a little bit of money, but not a lot. And then these guys go to college. They get the education. They get the college experience at these big U.S. Uh, colleges. And then they come out as a free agent. They go around to every team in the league and basically say, well, you want me? Well, here, pay for me. Like it, was, it's, it, it seemed like such a smarter way to go than what we were doing. Uh, and now you look at it, and I'll be honest with you, man, if I, if I had a boy and I was trying to decide be, between one or the other, it would, just, it would just be college all the way, no question. No doubt. I mean, if it's, if it's really that way and, and there's such a big dichotomy between the two, sure. Yeah, I mean sure. they 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 say they'll they'll pay for your education if you don't sign a pro contract when you play a certain number of years of junior hockey. But man, we would. I'm playing in Kamloops. We had a great team, and uh, I, my deepest, dearest friends to this day were guys that were on that club when I was like 18, 19 years old. Been to Kamloops, by the way. Have you? Oh yeah. Went to uh, through BC one year. Passed through there. Wow. Had dinner there one night. Yeah. That in Kelowna. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right on the lake. Yeah. Did you see Ogopogo? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the lake monster? Our, our little Canadian Loch right. Ness? Uh, but just, I didn't see him, but I heard about him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God you didn't see him. But just think of what, uh, I mean, I just think of it now, and it's, it's so crazy. I'll, I'll tell you this. So we would travel down to play in Portland or in Seattle, but Portland's the better one. It was 10 or 11 hours on a bus mm-hmm. from Kamloops down over the border. We would, we would stop and eat, eat our pregame meal at the Royal Fork, which was like a, a, one of those bus buffet places, right? Right. So you'd go in, sneeze guard up, and you'd load up on whatever they had there. It looked like pigeon meat and whatever else. They sold it off as chicken. And they were ahead of the curve steak. with the sneeze guard. Yeah, they? yeah, they were. <laughs> they were COVID-ready back then. And, uh, and then, you know, so you'd sleep a little bit. You'd have your nap. You'd get in like an hour and a half before the game, have a shower, put your gear on, go out, play, turn around, stop, grab some burgers, and all night it back – and then get in in the morning, and you'd be expected to go to school the ne- the next morning. And if you, we got paid seventy two dollars every two weeks. That that was what we were getting paid. Now your room and board and your meals were paid for, sort of. But some of those billets were trying to make money off you. Yeah, uh, you know, you'd get you'd come in and you'd get pancakes and and sausages for dinner some nights or cereal for lunch, and it was like what the. They were pocketing some cash. But if you didn't go to school, you got fined, I think it was uh, 10 bucks, and it was $5 if you were late. It didn't seem like a lot of money, but, man, that would, it would add up in a hurry when you were getting $72 every two weeks. So you'd go, you'd be a zombie, you'd go to school just to get it done, and then you'd have to practice in the afternoon again. And I played for a coach, and I loved him. I played for Hitch, but I also played for uh, uh, LaForge, and and Bill LaForge was that was your first notorious run in with Hitch, he, yeah, in junior. Okay, yeah, and I'll tell you the story about <laughs> when I first saw him. Uh, but LaForge was was crazy, but but he, he, I mean, he was like those old school football coaches, probably like Woody Hayes and them, you know, like fear of God in you. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, guys would play extremely hard for him, and he was such a different guy off the. Uh, at home, he had you know little girls and daughters, and and it was weird to go to his house and have dinner, but you'd do it from time to time. But we would lose, and he had a drill that every, every goal that you lost would be a, a glove. It was called the glove drill. So just think, we we lost one night in Portland, I think thirteen to two or thirteen to three. It was crazy days back oh my then. Gosh, I think I got kicked out. That's why they scored thirteen. I don't think it was in for all of them. <laughs> And uh, so you, we do all w- what I just said. So you'd, you'd bust down all day, play the game, turn around and bus all night. And we had to go through the Fraser Canyon on our bus. And I remember sitting at the back, and this is dead of winter. And 
down one side of the bus, it's like a thousand foot drop off down into the canyon. And you got a bus driver. I don't know whether he slept or not. You know, and he's taking us down. He's taking us back. It's snowing. You look out the front. It just looks like white out. And you're like, I don't know. You're you're 17 years old. So you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Nothing's going to happen to you. But you think back on it now, and you're wondering, my God, what were we doing? So we get back, and before you even go to school in that, and your gear would be frozen under the bus. He'd say, "Go ahead, uh, get in the room, get your gear on. Doesn't matter which way your stick is curved." Because there are going to be no pucks involved. And he'd line the gloves up. So every goal. So if we lost by 10 goals, he would line 10. He'd space them out all the way up the ice. And you'd have to go in groups. It broke us into groups of maybe three or four. You'd go out to the first glove and back. Next glove, next glove, next glove, 10. That was one. And you had to do it 10 times. And there, so there would be just like a snow pile at the end of the rink where you were stopping and starting, stopping and starting all the way back. And then you'd finish up and he'd say, okay, off to school, you guys go and you finish up the day. But what it, what it instilled in you though, was you never gave up on games. Like you didn't just throw away games. You did yeah. that a couple times and you're like, I don't, I don't care if we're down eight to two, we're going to make this eight to six somehow. Cause it, cause I know what's coming on the other side of things. Like it was, it, it bordered on abuse at the time. To get through it, it's a different time now. You couldn't get away with sure. anything that was going on back then. Um, but it, it was the, it was your path to, to greatness and, and playing pro hockey. It's all we wanted to do. It's all we knew. It's crazy. Never have quite understood how the whole structure of the scene for a kid. From- but I think, I, I think a lot of parents, it seems, it seems crazy, right? That yeah. you're just going to send your kid off. But your your choice was either your kid stays home, and he turn you know he flips boards on the green chain at the mill f- for life, or y- you can go off and get a better mm, life. Take or, a shot. Yeah, t- take your shot exactly. Yeah. And and a lot of guys that stayed home, man, that was their life, and they're happy with what they did in that. But that that's not what I wanted. I wanted I wanted to play pro hockey. And my parents were okay with it. I had sisters, and it had to be tough when I left. But at the same time, I think they understood. But, geez, it seems like such a young age to take off and spread your wings a little bit. Were you the only boy? Yeah. Yeah. That probably was part of it, too. I'd had enough of all those girls waiting for a bath every morning. Of course. My God. That is amazing. Now, another thing I want to get into with you here is what led you into doing what you're doing now? Because let's go back and and you can pick... Failure at my other profession, I guess. (laughs) Well, (laughs) pick the point in your career where you started thinking about that and then take me kind of from that up until you actually were doing it. Uh, Yeah, it's... I've been asked the question often, and I was injured a lot near the end of my uh, career, and I always had a. My dad was a pretty funny guy, and and uh, I, I think I always had a bit of an entertainer's, uh, you know, attitude or character to whoever I was. So Were whether you always the team cut oh, up yeah, raiser, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was not good in school either for that reason, but but yeah, I mean it, it was. Humor and having a good time was a big, big part of my life, and still is. Gee, what a shock! So when I uh, when when I started getting injured a little bit, there was a show that they were doing called uh, Rinkside. It was the American Hockey League. It was so it was minor league hockey, mm-hmm. and I did some stuff. Now, were on, you playing in the league at that time? There, uh, yeah, or, or, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. This was. Yeah, like nowadays, all these athletes have their own platform, and they put out their own stuff in that. We were way ahead of the curve. We did this show. A guy named Jim Ralph and I, both goaltenders, he does color for the Maple Leafs now, and he's on the Rubber Chicken Tour. He does an incredible job at banquets and that. But we would, we would do this weekly show. It was like a weekly highlight show for the, for the minor leagues. And that started things. Moved on uh, from that and... Did some stuff. There was a, a weekly show in the NHL 
uh, also. And somehow I got interviewed on that one, and I, I, I was doing, I don't know, I was doing impressions and just being a jackass. And with that, uh, it got showed uh, around the league a little bit. And, uh, and that's, in, in a lot of ways, that's probably how I ended up down here in Dallas. I think Jeff Kogan back in the day saw it on the Jumbotron at Reunion Arena. And I was doing work for ESPN back, back then and doing that. And they were like, well, maybe that. They were changing things up down here. And I ended up down here. But I think it was mostly the injuries and the idea that, you know, because I, I was drafted by Edmonton. I'd made it to the NHL. Back down again uh, to the Myers, moved on to the Hartford Whalers, made it back to the NHL again, and then I tore my hamstring off the bone in Winnipeg one night, and I was going to have to rattle around in the minors again and, and try to battle my way back up. And I, by then, I, I was in my late 20s, and I was like, uncle, I want to move on to something else. And I always, you know, some of my greatest heroes growing up were broadcasters, not hockey players or goaltenders. Like, I love broadcasting. I love play-by-play guys. And, like who? Uh, Danny Gallivan was, was my hero. Jim Robson we had in Vancouver and in British Columbia. I went to sleep every, almost every game night listening to Jim Robson and uh, Canuck games on CKNW. That was back when it was like WBAP down here. I mean, 50,000 watts. Sure. It blew all over uh, BC. And you'd pick that up at night and listen to those Canuck games and, and fall asleep. Uh, you know, Harry Neal, who's a Hall of Fame color guy, was, was my guy. Like, I, I loved them. I, I, I studied them. I, I copied them. I imitated them. And when it looked like my hockey career had hit an end, I, I was like, I'm going to do this. So what I did, I, I wanted to not be the dumb jock that moved on from the playing surface into, into broadcasting. I thought, I, I got to give myself some education so I went to a, a, just one of those little uh, trade and technical schools in Boston. My wife was at Northeastern at the time. I was done. We were living there. So I went to the Northeast Broadcast School. And in there, I mean, it was just a mess of misfits that didn't know what they were going to do with their lives in this thing. Back then, we, we were actually splicing tape back together and then oh, learning, yeah. like learning how to do that. Done it. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but it gave me, it, it gave me a, a foothold and a base in broadcasting that I, I never had before. You know, get, something as simple as getting rid of oral pauses. Yeah. And, you know, because you never really think of, yeah. of things like that. So it was just this very simplistic base of tools that I, I thought would give me a leg up and, and, and then I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I sent out tapes. I still have them. I laugh my ass off when I watch them again, trying to be an anchor. This is at the height of Sports Center and that, right, you know, and right. here I am doing highlights, and it's just awful to watch back again. Everybody wants to be Dan Patrick. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. catchphrases yeah. and all this stuff's going on. But, uh, but it helped. I, I, I really felt like it, it gave me some tools that other former players that were trying to get into broadcasting – just didn't have. So with that, sent out tapes here, there, and everywhere, and uh, got got a job in doing color in Detroit during the first lockout of the NHL, doing Vipers games at the Great Palace that's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And from there, uh, they were going to make a change in Hartford. My old team went there. Ended up doing color there for a year with John Forslund, who's now doing the games on, on NBC. And, uh, and then that year, they, there were rumblings that they were going to move. They were close to moving. And I knew Ken Hitchcock, who was hired down here. I had met uh, Doug Armstrong, who was the assistant general manager down here, because I was doing a little, little side job with my old agent, uh, Steve Bartlett, and just going around and trying to you know, basically schmooze a few of the, his clients and that. And through that, he had Jamie Langenbrunner, went to see him. Doug Armstrong was there to see Jamie Langenbrunner in the minors. We hooked up one day, and then when they were looking for a replacement down here, my name came up, flew down. Ralph Strand just picked me up. Uh, we had a meal together. 
had a little meeting, and I took a look around Dallas, Texas, and I was like, okay, let me think. Hartford, Connecticut, or this? I'm like, this, I'm in, and down I came. This is where you want to be. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that first year, and I always wondered why you weren't here because it seems like even then, you know, Ralphie was here. Yeah. And Mike Forns yeah. was the original play-by-play television guy. play-by-play host, as he called himself. Oh, really? Yeah. Shot in a goal. That's yeah. all I remember from him. <laughs> shot in a goal. Yep, that, yeah, he was, a, he was the first shot in a goal guy <laughs> I ever heard. <laughs> we didn't get a lot of hockey down here back no, in the day. No, no, no. But I seem to remember as I was making my rounds that people were telling me, well, they're going to bring somebody else in here next year. And I thought, well, you know, it's a long way away from me. But I started hearing your name. They're going to bring this guy, Daryl Ray, in here. Okay, well, great. Bring him in here. Let's see what happens. <laughs> see what bag and, of nothing he has. <laughs> and, and so they did make the change and everything. But your name was, uh, it was odd that your name was, I really believed that your name was floating around out here even then. Oh, really? Yeah, somebody was pretty sold on you, man. They huh. must have been. For that to make its way down to my Man, level. I was nationwide before it was nationwide. <laughs> I, I, again, I, I, I don't know. I, I, ha- I was doing a few things with ESPN, uh, and that was back when they had the NHL. And, I mean, there was major exposure because of that. Yeah. And th- that was probably uh, part of the reason for it. It is weird, though. It seems like I've been here for the entirety of – of Dallas Stars hockey, but I really haven't. I got here when the winning started, along with Zubov. We arrived at the same time. And ever since then, there's been, uh, I mean, tons of great memories and terrific hockey and wonderful people, but also, you know, some dark segments to the 25 years or so. Mm -hmm. Zubov, the best player you ever saw come through here? Oh, God. I I, No, I mean... He's he was incredible. I wished he he was a little more outgoing, and would have done more interviews, and that because he would have, he would have been given more accolades that he deserved. But he was just so quiet and went about his business, almost like an inside secret with yeah. him. I ask that because a lot of people tell me that. Yeah, yeah. He his teammates would tell you that. Yeah, all, all the guys that play yeah, with him yeah. would all say uh, if if you pulled them, yeah, Madonna and Hall and. Newendike and, uh, you know, yeah, run guy, through the gamut. Guys uh, like that are mainly who, who, the ones that I've heard it from. They would all say that Sergei Zubov was the best player they ever played with. And we probably didn't even appreciate him as much as we should have back then. I just remember every time, once a year, we would try to do an interview with Sergei Zubov, like on television. Right. And it was such a beating because he did not want to do it. it he was uncomfortable but we'd agree once a year, Sergey, you're going to do this. So he would come off the ice. He already w- had his defenses up. We'd shove a headset on him. And I swear to you, every time we did it, about three seconds before we were go- going live to him, he would drop an F-bomb. Every time. Like, he, he'd be standing there. He'd be holding on to his, his boom with it. And, be, and then all of a sudden, he'd be like... And I know we can swear on this thing, can sure. we not? Yeah. He, he'd be like, "We're we gonna fucking do this, or is this is this gonna fucking happen?" And and then it would be like, "Yeah, and we're back, and uh, stars are up three to nothing, and stars defenseman Sergey Zubov joins us from downstairs, and then he he would just lose his his train of thought, and he didn't know where to look, and it was like the uh, Russian version of Ricky Bobby, you know, what do I do with my hands and. And then we'd get through it, and it was like, okay, that's over. Well, we won't do that for another calendar year. <laughs> but we came so close every time to him just barking out an F-bomb. <laughs> what a great guy. Boy, he now he works. Now he's working for yeah, the team again, yeah. which is crazy. I, 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 the most enjoyable guy, though, has always been Madonna. and Just because, you know, Mike loved the lighter side of things, and – there's no hockey, there's no Dallas Stars here without him and w- no doubt. What, what he looked like, how he played, what he endured in those early years down here and, and culminating in the, in the Cup in 99. 
And I, I loved him on interviews because he, he always understood very early on that the longer he talked, the fewer questions he was going to have to answer. So he, you'd ask a question or anybody would ask a question. He'd ramble on forever and ever. And it was always this circuitous, meandering answer to the question. And you're like somewhere in there, I think he got to it. But then you're like, okay, time's up and moving on. And he knew that. He knew it. And he would just babble, 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 babble. And then it was like, oh, we're done here. Oh, good. I'm off. He and I were neighbors for a few years. I probably got to know him a little bit better than, uh, I mean, I didn't really know him that well, but still. He loved the ticket. Yeah, yeah. We would see each other around and everything, and he was always real nice, real accommodating. I mean, he actually wanted to shoot the shit with me like most other athletes. Yeah. he, He was always game to. For a little banter and repartee when I would see him out on the street or something. Because he loved what you guys did. And I, w- I would pull him back when we were in Valley Ranch, which were the great days. Man, those were good days in the late 90s. Because the Cowboys facility was right down the street. And and we were in Valley Ranch. Mm-hmm. That White House was, I think, a like a seven <laughs> iron away from uh, where the Stars facility was. Uh, but everybody lived there. Like all the cowboys lived in Capel. All the all the stars lived in in Capel, and and they would mingle. You'd go out. You'd run into everybody all the time. But I would pull into the parking lot, and I'd look. And Madonna, I, I think he drove a BMW back then. He'd be sitting in his car, and it's like I don't know, forty five minutes before practice. There's a time limit. You have to be in the room in that, and he'd be hanging in to listen to Gordon in the morning before he went into the room. And then I could see him. He'd be laughing his ass off in the car. And he'd come out, and I'd say, what the hell are you doing? The fir- first time uh, I saw him doing that, and he'd go, oh, that Gordon Keith, and then he'd go. <laughs> he loved the ticket. He loved everything about it. Man, I miss that guy. Yeah. He's up in Minnesota now with, like, 15 kids or something. He's got, like, a... Uh, a growing family. I, I don't know if he understands birth control at this point or what it is. But How many has he got? I think he's got five. Really? I, I do. I think he just had another baby. Damn. It's either four or five. So, he, you know, he, he took the the delayed route to fatherhood. Yeah. Once he got going, he just Man, he's, he went he's rabbit. roll. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's working for the team up there. So he's gone a little bit full circle, too, where, he, you know, he started his – professional career in Minnesota and now he's back there and and working for the club so how is it that a broadcaster comes to have the organizational cachet easy for me to say that you were said to have what do you mean the power that I have well the just the organ not I don't know if it's power but organization have any power well now that's not what I've heard oh my god I've heard that you were consulting. If I had the power that you're speaking of, Ryan's, I'd change a lot of things around here. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, maybe you don't have the power, but you have the input. Yeah. So I, people tell me. Yeah. You know what? I It's probably the the greatest thing that I, I really value uh, here in my time is that I've been given uh, a say in how we construct things on my side, in my little world, you know, in the broadcast world, that, that uh, I have I have a lot of say. It would be hard. Now, I've heard it extends farther than no. that. Oh, my God. But then you've heard wrong. People, You're doing what? What people, am I doing? Hiring and firing people? Well, people tell me that you were consulted whenever it's time to get a new coach. No, they they no. ask you what you think. <laughs> who told you that? It's no. One of those things you hear out there. I hear from people who... No. Or in a position to know? No. No. That is, that is completely untrue. Uh, I've had wonderful hockey conversations with a lot of terrific hockey people within here, but uh, th- believe you me, they don't listen to the broadcaster. <laughs> they, they listen to them during the broadcast. Right. But, but they're it. not really listening to the broadcaster. They, they're smart enough people uh, without me. But within my own little world in... in Dallas Stars broadcasting. I've I've always cherished the idea that that I can have a, a real strong say in what we look like, how we do things. Uh, because my fear in the very beginning, and I, I said this to our guys, was I I just don't want to put out a product where other people are are watching it or consuming it. And I mean by other people like Canadians because we we end up on satellite. Even back in the day, we'd end up on 
satellite or they pick us up on radio or something. Sure. I don't want us to sound or look like we're trying to do hockey in Texas. Just a bunch of Yahoo. You know what I mean? Ho- oh yeah, sure. Like absolutely. I, I I want people to look and go, my God, they they do a great job down there in Texas. They're as good as any Canadian broadcast or you know Chicago, Boston. You know, pick an original six city broadcast. And I, I think we've lived up to that, not all the time, but most of the time. And I'm I'm very proud of that. But as far as having any kind of uh, powerful influence above that, I th- that that's a myth. <laughs> I, I don't have that. I get asked. I think I get asked my opinion from time to time. But where that goes, uh, I, I think it just drifts off like smoke. You know, you've had a lot of good play-by-play guys yes. that have come through there. Ralphie, then Dave Strader, yeah. and now Josh. And the chemistry that you and Josh have built up seems pretty extraordinary to me. I think that guy calls a really mean game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I make guys look good. I, I, that's that's one of my real strengths, I think. Uh... <laughs> You're making me look good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you go back to Ralph. I mean, we we were together for what was it like uh, eighteen years, close to that. We were yeah. the longest tenured. Yeah, the better part of your time here duel. for sure. Uh, and and it was a it was an interesting existence, uh, and you can probably appreciate this from your professional career. I I, I always feared friendship like deep friendship on on the mic because what you end up doing is you end up talking so much and saying so many things and covering so many topics in that off the mic that once you get on the mic you, you never get into it again because it feels stale you and yeah yeah whereas if you don't if you're separate you don't really intermingle all that much when you do come together on there, man, it's it's just sparks and it's it's flying and it's high wire and and away you go. And I think people would be surprised how many broadcasts that you watch and you're like, man, they must spend like twenty out of every twenty four hours together, the way they come across on television. But it's rarely that way, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. You know what we used to do when both with uh, when Grego was with me and then later on when Corby was there. Whenever we were off the air and we would be shooting the shit and getting into something pretty good, you know, there was a little bit of, uh, there was a little bit of a thread developing here. Yeah. I would shut it down. Oh, good. And say, let's. For that very yeah, reason, yeah, right? Let's, let's bring this to the air. Yeah. Let's don't do any more on this. Because you can't, you can't you, do it no, again. You can't recreate it. No. You got to keep it fresh. It's like uh, on the television side, a lot of times, I, I understand rehearsing our opens and things like that because there's a timing element to it, but I hate it because I don't think I'm ever as good when we actually do it live as I was when we ran through it. Yeah. But you're doing it not only for our timing, but for the technical timing and the truck and people and, you know, and then you go live. Yeah. Uh, And I worried all the time that, that you'd sit around and you'd talk shop forever and then you get on the mic and you're like, well, I'm all talked out. Like, we covered all that stuff. You, you really want to talk about that again? I could never wrap my mind around that. So It's hard to do, man. Yeah. It's hard like, to do. Like, even with straights, uh, like, and I, I, we have the same sense of humor. We had, we had so much fun together in a short period of time. That was such a sad thing, uh, losing him. Uh, and, and he was another one of those guys, you know, back to – what Jamie said about Rick Bonus behind the bench, man, he was here for a week and it felt like he'd been here for a decade. Yeah. Like it just, it boom, it was just like that. And, uh, and we had, we had so much fun and, and the team was really good uh, that year, you know, in 2016. Then you go forward and we were trying to hold it together. And, and really the, the greatest play by play guy the stars have had was of course me uh, for two years as I, I held it together along with, of course. With Craig Ludwig. <laughs> of course. And it was a, look, it was a dream for me. I always wanted to do play by play, but uh, it's like anything in life, you know, you, you need two parties to keep going. And, and uh, it was the same with my career. You know, I would have signed all kinds of NHL contracts, but nobody else was going to sign them along with me. And you needed two That's signatures right. on That's it. That's right. 
and they wanted to move forward and and do it a different way and you know so you make the best of the situation you're in and and Josh comes along and he'd been here and seen a lot of, of what had gone on and and you get slapped together again and you make it happen and it's very uh similar to the situation with Ralph and I where we don't spend much time uh together away from the actual games you know he's got a young family a different part in his life and that but you come together and you you hit the uh ice skating or ground running and uh, it comes together and and we've had the benefit again and Ralph and I used to talk about this all the time nothing is easier in broadcasting than broadcasting a a great team and a winning uh team because Game in and, and game out, and day after day, you're mostly talking about positives. Yeah, you're bringing good news and to it, the so, masses. So everybody loves your broadcast. Yeah, yeah. It's like, man, that's a great broadcast. When it's a 50-50 proposition, and they're winning some, and they're losing some, well, 50% of the time, you're explaining why they didn't win. And especially in my position, you're trying to tell people in a, you know, a, not a homerish way, but in a way that keeps you employed, that this didn't happen and that didn't happen and he wasn't as good as he needs to be and this. So there are negatives in there. Then you run into a rancid uh, section of this thing where they're not winning at all and people are getting fired and that and your broadcast sucks because <laughs> you ha- you know you, the team's not winning, not as many people are tuning in, a lot of negatives you have to talk about and that and it's exhausting. So Then uh, you have to explain to everybody – that it's going to get better someday. Right. But when? But, but also not sound like, you know, Pollyanna or yeah, the most yeah. Panglossian view of whatever's going on yeah, and, yeah, and I mean, are going to yeah, go on you, in the you future. You can't turn a blind eye to what's going no, on no, for sure. No, and I, I, I've loved that about it here too. I, great, uh, you know, respect for, for Jim Lights and, and the people above me, uh, now Brad Alberts, that have allowed us to, to go about our business. I think they'd like the fact that they can just leave us alone. They never really have to worry about that portion of, of things. It'll get taken care of. And for the most part, the bar is going to be up here. And it might dip every now and then, but they're going to try to keep it back up here again. So fast forward to the last couple of years and, and Josh and I and and some changes, obviously, in behind the bench and, and that. But, you know, you get through a, a playoff run again. They almost get to the conference final last year. And now... This year, albeit in a bubble, and we're calling games in a room in, uh, over in Las Colinas, uh, it's success again. And so, we, yeah, we're wonderful uh, this year. We're terrific. You might call a Stanley <laughs> Cup champion here yes. in a few nights. Yes. I, ironically, we might be closer to the actual action in 2020 than we were in Buffalo back in 99 <laughs> when we were way over in the corner in that arena. I remember that. I remember that that place. Boy, you guys were a long way away. Man, that was... We'd get in there and, and uh, where we were sitting and look around for you guys and go, man, they're, they're up there. Oh, they gave us the shit perch in, in that arena. And where the goal went in was at the very far end of that arena. Yeah. And I don't, you know, Ralph's calling the game in that, and I just blurted out, it's in. And then off we went. And then, my God, what an aftermath after that one. Terrific party. I don't know, I don't know what this will look like this year with, you know, nobody in the building. And what do you do? How do you even have a parade? Do you have a, do you have a rally? Do you have, what do you do? Unknown. <laughs> Like everything else a, in 2020. That is the great unknown for yeah. right now. I guess it's one of those things that you just make up as you go along. Well, I'm out of shit, man. Are you? Yeah. Did I cover my life for man, you? Man, you covered it great. I was I was going to tell you the Hitchcock thing because he's beloved. Okay, do it. And he was your boy back in the yeah, day. Yeah, he was. I that love that was another. I love Hitch. That was another great. Uh, I'd love to get him on this thing. You should. Oh, he'll talk for you. He's not doing anything. He talk forever. I'd love that. I think he's in Kelowna right now. Oh, really? Yeah. I think he's out there just coaching every team in, on planet Earth, I think, in his mind. Well, give me a number if you've got <clears> one. I will. I'll pass that one along. He'd love, he'd love to talk. He loved you guys. That hitch in the hard line was must-listen-to afternoon drive back in the day. Let me tell you about one thing that happened on there okay. one time. It was like during his second time through here. One day we're about about to bring him on. And we're coming back from break. And our return music is a Jethro Tull song. 
And Corby says to me. A lot me, of pan flute going on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's an inside joke. <laughs> and Corby says to me, you think Hitch has ever seen Jethro Tull? And I said, I don't know. Let's bring him on. And so we bring him on and everything. And I say, Hitch, how you doing? He says, three times. He had seen Jethro Tull. He answered the question right away? Yeah, right away. Without even saying hi, fellows, or anything. He just said, it was almost like he was... He was pissed that Corby would... Would even suggest yeah, would, that would he, he might not have. Yeah, would yeah. doubt his cred like yes. that. It was like three times. <laughs> <laughs> you and, guys, if you have mine, you could talk for hours about music with Hitch. I know. We, like, we found that out. That, I mean, that day, we spent at least half the segment, maybe more, just talking about that. Loves his little river band. And, Man. Oh, he, he's, that, he's an... He's an interesting human being, man. Well, he is an interesting human being. Like, I've known him since I was 17. So the first time I, I was ever going to meet him, and again, my junior coach at the time was, you know, LaForge. I mean, I'm trying to g- grab the proper comparison, but I, I, I don't know if you could. Just imagine the most maniacal, uh, tough, uh, it's borderline insane athletic coach you can conceive hard ass uh, of all hard asses. yes and just believed in in you know either either hurdle the dead or trample the weak you know like just that's the way you went about your business got the most out of you turned turned you into a man he was one of those guys that yeah, really i mean right. you're 17 16 years old you became a man pretty quick playing for him you either could handle it or you couldn't right and it weeded out some guys to a completely different world than we're existing in here now. Thank God. It's not the same way. Uh, and then we were going to go to Hitch, and you could not have more polar opposites because you had this very congenial uh, man. Now, I'd heard stories. He was coaching a uh, midget team, not, not little people, but uh, 15-year-old, right. 16-year-old hockey in, uh, in Sherwood Park in Alberta. And we were going to hire this guy. And I heard that he was he was a little husky, like he he had some some girth to him back then. And my buddy Greg Eftishevsky had known him for a long time, so I, I traveled out to Edmonton, and and Chevy and I were, you know, two teenagers about town. And he took me to United Cycle, which I'm sure you've heard of. Mm-hmm. That's where Hitch was working. Right. So he worked in in this uh, hockey shop essentially, and coached kids. And uh, he said, he stopped me, and he says, now get ready. He's like, he's big. And I was, I was like, okay, whatever. So you go down the stairs into his office at United Cycle, and Hitch was in behind the desk. And not all of them was behind the desk. That's, that's how big Hitch was back then. Like, he was a big, big man. and Bigger than here? Oh, my God. Bigger than here, he he was he was twice the size. Wow! Like I I don't know what the actual number was, but I mean he, I mean there were so many there were so many jokes. He had to deal with so much. We always had his back. But back to Portland again. Uh, before I finish this up, you had to walk as a coach. You had to walk out of the end of the rink all the way to the far bench on the ice to get to the bench, right? Right. And they would Hitch would come on the ice, and they would start playing. I don't know if you had the A and W Root Beer song down here, if that's a Canadian thing, but it was this bum 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 bum, and Hitch would have to walk all the way over there with that song playing in the arena, and then we'd just kick the living shit out of the Portland Winterhawks. And we'd be able to walk out of there and feel pretty fat and sassy about ourselves after it. And uh, Hitch would just absorb it and go on. So I walked down those stairs, and the look on my face must have been something else because I was just shocked at this guy's going to coach us. And he got down there, and he was Hitch. You know, he was just full of energy and talking and, you know, big hug and looking forward to this and looking forward to that. 
And I turned around when we left there, and I said to Chev uh, on the way out of there, I'm, I'm like, can he skate? Like, he was that big. And he's like, yeah, he, he doesn't really skate. He just sort of pushes and glides and coasts to a spot and then a, to another spot. Sure enough, that's how he did it. One of the most brilliant, brilliant hockey men I, I've ever come across in this game. A, a dear, dear friend. And in order to even get a chance to coach in this league, in the NHL, he had to lose half of himself. And he did it. He, he, he lost all the weight. Uh, if you look at him when he coached us in junior, and then you look at him when he got hired here in, in Dallas. I think I've seen those pictures. It's like two different human beings. And, he, you know, he's battled it his whole life and, and kept it off. And, uh, and he's, a, he's just an uh, amazing guy. But, man, back in the day, I, you know, I kid, we all kidded and that. But I was like, I don't know whether, whether he can coach in this league or not, but I know we're not going to go hungry. <laughs> we're going to eat well, win or lose. And sure enough, we did. So he, uh, have him on. I, great respect. Uh, for him over just about anybody else that I've come across in my in my hockey life and uh you know deep respect for you and listening to you much and respect the for ticket you too, brother all that you stuff you're one of a kind flattered that you'd want to hear my garbage Man, of, I, of what's I gone on cannot thank you enough for doing this so as we leave this here w- when do I know that it's time for me to give the old Irish exit and get out of this thing because you did it I'll tell, with style, right. my man. All right. I will tell you the same thing that somebody told me when I asked them that. I ran into two guys prior to all this when I was just starting to think about it, you know, that had recently done that. They, were, they weren't in radio or anything like that, but they were in very high, very uh, profitable, very significant, powerful scenes. You know, they were men of significance in their field. And they both stepped away. They didn't know each other. And I asked them, how did you know when it was time for you to go? And they both kind of got to it from different ways, but they essentially said the same thing, and that's it. When it's time, you'll know. Really? Yeah. In fact, one of them just did that. One of them just looked at me and said, Mike, when it's time, you will know. Trust me. And? And I did. They were right about that. Like, did it come on quickly, or was this a, a thing that had lingered for a um, bit? It had lingered. It, it had been kind of lingering before I really identified it, and before I really realized yeah. what was going on, what I was thinking, what what I, I was, what was really going on with me. Yeah. But once I did, I I said, okay, well, let's we're away. Let's do this at the end of the year, to where. A big deal won't be made out of it. There won't be any big night or big going away thing or anything like that. You didn't that. want any of that, did you? No, I didn't. I just wanted to slip out the back door. Yeah, I, wanted I, the Irish, I wanted the Irish exit. Yeah. And uh, I said, let's just let this thing stew for a while and see if anything happens to to make you rethink. And I knew at that time that something would because I loved the game. Yeah. I love the gig. I love the radio station. The radio station is my baby. I love the guys. I loved everything about it. And I kept waiting for something to bring me back to reality, and nothing did. Hmm. And somewhere in there, I realized that this is what I really want to do. Yeah. And I did it. See, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not anywhere near there. I've, I've never really fully pondered any of that but you get you start getting asked you know oh, geez you're coming up on uh, 25 years and, yeah oh and yeah, that, yeah and you're like you're like man that that went by rather quickly yeah people would ask me that too you know how much longer are you going to do this yeah. and i just look at them and say the end is not in sight yeah you know yeah I mean, it, it was a non-starter for me same way and i would think in this climate now there would be a lot of whether it's false positives is the right way to say it or something where guys would be in this business and be like, I think I'm done just because of the nature of zoom and COVID and isolation and all those things that you might make the wrong decision and, and think to yourself, man, I'm done. I want to move on to something else. You might be done in what 
is transpiring right now, but you might not be fully done done yeah. in, in what you're doing. Um, but I, I can I can see how people make that mind up though when things have just shifted too much from from what your your core is and whether it's no longer fun or no longer challenging or are just so different that it's not what you signed up for initially i would get that i would rolls man but i'm not there yet well don't get there don't get there we need you yes stars hockey needs you yeah i don't know about that i do i i truly believe i and and this is as god is my witness i believe that the minute you think that you're irreplaceable, you're replaced. You're, and, and it easily replaced at your position. As soon as you get that in your mind, that well, they, they would never get rid of me, or I'll be here as long as I want to be here, you get replaced. So I've never felt that way. I've always felt like I had to earn my oats daily in and yearly. it shows. It so. shows. I mean, you're into it. You're way into it. It shows every time you're on TV, man. 50 cent words and a little bit of wisdom, and I get away with it. And Spinderella. Give us more Spinderella. Two of the greatest play-by-play guys in Dallas Stars history right here talking shop. You at the Charity Challenge and me for a couple of years on the air. Somebody tried. Not that. Good luck. Good luck to all of you. I enjoyed this. Thank you. This is a treat, Thank you so much, man. Yeah. All the best to you. All the best to you, too. That is Square One. Thanks for listening.